Okay, we're going to be continuing our Gospel of John series today by talking about the baptizer. And today we're going to introduce one of the most unique men in the entire New Testament. We see much of his life and ministry in the Gospel of John, but we're also going to be using several other scriptures from other Gospels to highlight this man's life. So we're going to begin with prayer, and then we're going to be going into the sermon. We're not going to read a specific passage yet. We'll be reading them throughout the message. So let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just take this man's life, John the Baptizer, and use it to encourage us in our walk with you. Use it to inspire us, Lord. Use him to to move us to a further and deeper and more honest relationship with you so that we can live our lives like he did to proclaim Jesus to the nations. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. So in 1994, I had one of the most interesting jobs in the world. I got to do, on the weekends, I got to do on-site medical for a Renaissance fair. If you've never been to one of these, it's an event where people dress and act like they did in the Middle Ages. And all the food is from that time era, and all the talk is Shakespearean in nature. They use thee and thou and everything, so all you fans of the King James Version feel right at home. And they even had a king and a queen that would walk the streets and talk with people, and, and they, they were the actual authority over that area. And one of the best part about a Renaissance fair was the duels. There were knights in armor that would come out and duel each other in sword matches or have archery contests. And one of the most exciting things I love to watch it, um, about the whole thing was the mounted joust. This is where knights were riding horses at each other with big, long, it looked like a spear. Um, it's called a lance, and they try to knock each other off their horse. At the introduction to each match, there was someone who called a herald who would come out and tell you all the great things that this knight has ever done. They would tell you who his lineage, they would tell you who his family is, they would say, you know, the third Duke of Earl and all this, and he is the champion of this tournament and the champion of that tournament, and he has fought in this war and that war, and he's brave, he's done all these mighty deeds. And he would be telling the crowd this to get them behind their champion and um, get him ready to defeat the dastardly villain on the other side of the field. In biblical times, they had something very similar in the Roman Colosseums. Whenever a major gladiator would come out, he would also have a herald, and he would tell the crowd and, and get the crowd just riled up and, and ready to uh, see the gladiator come out and do battle. So it would make sense in a, in a way that the most famous hero that ever lived would also have a, a herald. And the most famous hero ever to live was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today we're going to be focusing on the life and ministry of John the Baptizer. Some people know him as John the Baptist. I kind of think he's more Pentecostal myself because he's really a wild man, as we'll see as we, as we start to uh, look in there. So I'm going to call him John the Baptizer because I don't think he'd, be, he'd fit in a lot of Baptist churches today. And there are several things about his life and ministry that shine through the ages and show us how we're supposed to live for God. And the first thing I want to look, for, look at this morning are the circumstances regarding his birth and his early life. And the first thing I want to look at about his birth is that John's birth was foretold in the last book of the Old Testament. Now I want to put you to just put yourself in the place of the people of Israel during the time of Roman rule. 
At the time that Jesus' birth is coming around, it's been over 400 years since there's been any hint of God showing favor or giving word through a prophet. The last prophet of the Bi of, on record, Malachi, however, gives the people of Israel an exciting promise that the greatest Old Testament prophet of all will come in to usher the Messiah. And this is what Malachi says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. He said, See, I will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their fathers toward their children and the hearts of their children toward their fathers. And we see the nature and mission that John will have right here in that verse. He's compared to Elijah. And Elijah, if you read about him in the Old Testament, his whole ministry was all about turning people away from idols, turning people away from false worship, and bringing them back to the pure worship of God Almighty. And so John's life, his ministry, and his mission were all set before he was even conceived. And that brings us to another point about John's birth. John's birth was a miracle in of itself. John's parents were a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, at the time of John's birth, they're getting up there in age. They had already been in AARP for a decade. They're a couple that have never been able to have children. And Elizabeth was well beyond her childbearing years. Zechariah... John's father was a priest, and he was doing what priests do. They had, they had regular shifts that they would pull, and Zechariah's job was to go in and make sure that the candlestick inside the holy place in the temple was not going to go out. So he's in there, he's trimming the candlestick, and all of a sudden, big light, and Angel Gabriel appears. Now, Angel Gabriel, he's like the Michael Jordan of angels. I mean, he's the, one of the most famous of the angels. So when he is coming... Gabriel is coming to deliver the very word of God. God says it. Gabriel is exactly what I want you to say. Gabriel runs over here and says exactly what God is saying from his throne. He's the announcing angel. So Gabriel tells uh, Zechariah that you are going to have a son. This son is going to be a Nazarite and he's going to be set apart for God's work. Now, a Nazarite, the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament meant no wine, no haircuts, no women, no touching anything that can make them unclean. You are totally set apart for God's work. And Zechariah is amazed. He's amazed. He's like, I can't believe this. Like, I, I'm like 80 years old. How am I going to be able to have a child? My wife, you know, she's a little younger than I am. How is she going to be able to have a child? And she, he's going through this, this crisis of faith. And because of that doubt, Gabriel declares that he will be unable to speak until after the birth of his son. Now, we always look at that as a negative. We always say, well, Gabriel, you know, heard, heard something from God and pronounced it to to Zechariah and said, you're not going to be able to talk, that it was a punishment. But I want, to, I want to just submit to you, and I think some of the women here will agree with me, that this is a blessing. This is a blessing for Elizabeth. Think about it. She's probably in her 70s at this point. She's finally pregnant. Now, now in biblical times, if you had no children as a woman, you were considered to be cursed. You were considered to be kind of less than nothing. That was just this part of their culture. But now she's pregnant, she's in her 70s, so she's happy. 
And she has a husband that can't talk. Think what a blessing that would be. And all the women here said, Amen. Amen. Yeah. About six months into the pregnancy, Elizabeth gets a visit from her niece Mary, who just found out that she was pregnant. As soon as Mary walks into the room, the preborn John starts dancing for the river dance, that musical river dance. You ever seen that? He just he starts tap dancing. He grabs the, bun the umbilical cord and bungee jumps from the top of the uterus to the bottom. I mean, he just goes crazy hearing. Uh, Mary walk into the room and it's like even from the womb John is preparing for his ministry saying there's Jesus there's Jesus there's Jesus there's the Messiah he's not even born yet and he's proclaiming who the Messiah is going to be and then John is born in his younger years it's very possible that he and Jesus knew each other it's possible that he and Jesus played together maybe they had a a game similar to our Cowboys and Indians. Maybe they had Egyptians versus Hebrews. Some, you know, somehow they probably knew each other, played together, and, and grew up together. Then upon reaching the bar mitzvah age in the Jewish uh, society, that's the age when Hebrew boys were considered to be adults. It's around between 12 and 15 years old. At that time, they also choose their career. John's, of course, was chosen for him by God. And John heads off into the wilderness at that point, fulfilling his Nazarite vow to avoid anything that will bring him ritual, ceremonial, or moral uncleanness. Fast forward about 15 years. Out of the wilderness comes a wild-eyed man, hair below his waist. Comes, walk, comes out of the wilderness. There's locust parts in his beard. There's honey stuck to his hair. He probably doesn't smell very good. John finds the nearest rock near where some people can see him and hear him. Climbs up on it and starts yelling, Repent! For the kingdom of God is at hand. And he just yells this at the top of his lungs. And I was thinking about this, how we have to look how we look at people, and especially religious leaders. John was the prophet of his age at this time. And he was like the most unlikely person you would ever think God would use. Imagine for a moment that I got called away to an, for an emergency on a Sunday morning. Maybe I, I got held over at work and I wasn't able to come to service. And maybe Pastor Roger's out fishing or we can't get a hold of him. And so there's no one available to do the church service. So I, I call the district office and I, you know, I say, hey, Larry, I need a pastor. Do you know anybody? He goes, I know just the guy. I know just the guy. He's just, he's just dying to go and preach somewhere. I'll send him right over. He'll, he's only an hour away. I'll send him right over. So 10.15, Sunday school ends and no special speaker yet. 10.25 comes around. You know, Conrad, Keith, and James are looking around going, uh-oh, okay, who's going to preach because he hasn't shown up yet? 10.30 comes around, still nobody. He decided to start service. We'll start service. Maybe he's just running a little bit late because of the snow. So, you get so they start service, and at 10.45, you hear the front door open. And you know, just with that rush of air that comes in every time we open that door, it carries in it a smell. And you're like, what is that? And you see a guy walking up the, the roll here. His clothes are in tatters. He's got hair below his waist. He's got a trail of flies following him in. He comes up. He stands right up here at the, 
at the altar and he spins around and you see pieces of grasshopper in his beard and his, his, his hair is matted with honey and, and dirt. And he looks at you and he said, Repent! The kingdom of God is here! Thus ends my message. I'll be down there by the canoe area down there in case anybody wants to be baptized and walks out. This is what Israel was dealing with, with John the Baptist. And that's exactly how they felt. I mean, the, 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 the weirdness that we would have with that is exactly how Israel was looking at this, and especially their religious leaders. For 400 years, they've waited for Malachi's prophecy to come true, and they get John. And I sometimes wonder how many times we write off the crazy-looking and crazy-sounding people in our life. you imagine John the baptizer applying for a pastoral position today? I work cheap. All I need is some honey and locusts. Well, you don't need a parsonage. I'll just live outside. I'm fine. I mean, nobody would hire this guy. There was a, stu a story of a student attending um, Central Bible College. And his student body was informed that the chapel service at that day was mandatory because they had brought in a special speaker. And so one of the students was walking to the chapel along the main walk when he spotted a homeless person sitting near the side of the sidewalk right by the chapel. And he's asking everyone for help. He has his, his little cup out there and he's just asking, he says, I'm so hungry, can, can anybody give me any money? And, and the student watched as the kind of a wa uh, wave that would, everybody walking all the way around him and trying to avoid him, people walking on the, on the grass and walking all the way around to avoid this guy. And as he got closer, he just started to smell him. I mean, his hair was matted, it was filthy. He smelled like old wine and cigarettes. And all the Bible students, all the faculty just kept walking around him, avoiding, leaving, looking at him, and trying to get to the chapel. And all this guy wanted is some money to eat. And this particular student was moved to, for compassion for him. He said, man, we can't be doing that. And he, he walked up to him and he said, look, I have to go to chapel for school. It's required that I have to be there. There's a special speaker and, and we have to go. And I don't have any cash on me, but I'll tell you what, come to chapel with me. And afterward, I'll take, I have my debit card with me. I'll go and get you some Subway or get you something to eat. And so the man walked to chapel with him, and as everybody's crowding to get into chapel, he loses sight of the guy. He doesn't, he doesn't know where he's at at all. And so the guy sits down, and he goes, well, maybe he was too embarrassed to walk into a church. He's going to wait for me outside. And he sits down and prepares for the service. They go through their worship, and then the special speaker walks to the stage, and behind him he's lugging this big suitcase. And he gets to, this, gets to the, the stage, and he opens the suitcase and he pulls out the rags that he was wearing outside that smelled like cigarettes and wine. He pulled out the matted wig, put it on the stage. He pulled out the shoes that had holes in them, put it on the stage. And he walked back to the lectern and he opened his Bible to Matthew 25 and read the words of Jesus. Jesus said, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? 
or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king, Jesus, will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. He closed his Bible and he said, If you people here, as future pastors and faculties of one of the biggest Bible colleges in our denomination, cannot follow the simple command for our Lord, you need to resign right now and go pursue something else in life because you're not called to gospel ministry. There's a lot of repentance in that service. And I tell you this story, and I've told it in other messages, in the light of John the Baptizer, because we're too quick to judge people from their outward appearances. We're too quick to put a label on a person or too quick to declare a person unworthy of our attention or deserving, or that they deserve whatever fate that their bad decisions brought into their life. And may I remind everyone here, and I have to remind myself of this quite often, we all deserve hell. Every single one of us deserve hell. All have sinned and fallen short of God's expectations. There are no equivocations, there are no excuses, there are no extenuating circumstances that will move the judge of all humanity when we stand before him one day to give an account. It's only through the grace of Jesus that we will be saved from what we deserve. And John the baptizer, as rough as he was, as uncouth as he was, as, as loud as he was, as smelly as he was, was a wake-up call to a nation. That simple message that he had, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, what was the first message of Jesus? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus picked up that message and used it as a start as to start his ministry. And the church really messes this up when we try to add any other message other than the one given us to proclaim. And that's another lesson that we learn from John is that he stuck with the message that he was given and the message that matters the most. And everything that John did in ministry revolved around that simple truth. You remember even what Jesus said about John. John Jesus had some high praise to say about his cousin. He said, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Now think about that. You have 4,000 years of Old Testament. You have Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Samuel, Elijah, or any other Old Testament fi figure, and Jesus is saying there is no one greater than John. That's pretty high praise. John got that kind of, of proclamation from Jesus because John knew it was not all about him. John knew that he was only a herald. A herald is one that proclaims the magnificent of someone who comes after his message is complete. Most commentators believe that John preached less than a year. Think about that for a moment. 16 years in the wilderness. 16 years of barely surviving. 16 years of praying and seeking God. And we finally get out to get out in front of people to do that which you're called for. It's over in less than a year. Think about that. Your average, your average pastor goes to Bible college and seminary for anywhere between three to six years. 
Now, imagine you go through all of that preparation, you finally get a pastor job, and it's over in two weeks. All that preparation for such a short time. But John knew his mission, and he saw himself this way. It says that John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Let me put this in a little cultural context. You entered a rich man's home in the, in the, New, in the early New Testament. There was a servant there who was assigned to remove your sandals and wash your feet. Now you say, what do you have to do that for? Is that a ceremonial thing? Well, no, we're talking about first century Israel. There are no concrete streets. There is no real sewage. The streets are pressed dirt. Human and animal excrement flow down the stitches next to the roads, and they're often tracked up on the roads by those and picked up by those walking along the roads. So needless to say, your feet were pretty dirty as soon as you go out to the mailbox. Your, your feet got dirty. They got pretty filthy and disgusting. And so a servant was assigned the job to wash those people's feet, to take off their sandals for them so they didn't have to dirty their own hands. And he would reach down and undo the sandals and then wash your feet before you enter into the house. Now, that servant that did that was the least of all the servants of the house. You want to talk about the person who has the worst job on earth. That was the worst job on earth. I mean, he's, he's cleaning feet. And that I don't even want to tell you how disgusting those feet were. He was the least of all those servants. I mean, he was the guy that if he died in his sleep the night before, nobody would notice. I mean, he was just considered the most worthless person. That's how John thought of himself. And that is how John proclaimed Jesus. He didn't want any, any glory for himself. But he wanted it all to go to Jesus. And that's how our lives should be organized to give the maximum amount of glory to our Lord, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Let's look at what John said about Jesus. In the about one year he was active, John set the stage for how people should view Jesus. You have to remember that John's proclamation of Jesus flew against the Jewish expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. Messiah was supposed to be a king, a military leader that would restore the former glory of Israel and, and make Israel great again. John's message was all focused about Jesus, and he described him as Jesus was the anointed one. And that phrase points, anointed one, points to the royalty, it points to the kingship, points to the authority of, the, of who Jesus was and the authority that he would carry. All the kings in the Old Testament were called anointed kings. That means that they literally had a priest pour, pronounce a blessing over them and pour holy anointing oil over the top of them, symbolizing God's favor, God's spirit, and God's presence in their life. And the application for what John says here, calling him the anointed one, is that Jesus is the final king of Israel. And he is the one that will forever carry the title king of kings and lord of lords. John also said that Jesus was the son of God. This is another reference to kingship. But when it meshes together a kingship with the priesthood. He is saying that Jesus is your one-stop shop. He's going to be your ruler and he's going to be your priest. He's going to be your religious leader and your secular leader. 
and one who brings the nation back to God Almighty. He also said that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and it brings into to mind the fo- and into focus the message of Jesus. It wasn't just to restore the secular fortunes of Israel or anyone else. And too many people today want that Jesus. They want somebody who's going to make me rich and, and prosperous for a lifetime while ignoring the eternity that we're really preparing for. I mean, how dumb would it be for God to make us rich in this lifetime if it ruins our eternity that we'll be in forever? So Jesus is focused on bringing us back to him. And the Lamb of God refers to the Passover lamb, the lamb that was sacrificed when the death angel came to Egypt. You remember they they had to sacrifice a lamb and they put the, the lamb's blood over the top of the doors and the death angel would go over the top of them. They would, he would see the blood and go over the top of them. And that was Jesus' mission here on earth, to be our covering so when death comes for us, it does not touch us, and we won't suffer the eternal death and hell for our sins if we believe in him for our salvation. John also said that Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And after dying for our sins and rescuing us from the fires of hell, Jesus restored from us what was taken away from us in the Garden of Eden because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And that was the indwelling presence of God within us and the power of God being available for us. The first one was restored right after Jesus rose from the dead. In John chapter 20, Jesus appears to the disciple after this resurrection, and he says in verse 22, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's the restoration of what was taken from humanity in Genesis chapter 3. You remember that they said they ate the forbidden fruit and they realized that they were naked. Well, they were naked before that. They were physically naked before that, and they knew no shame. So it had to be something else that was taken from them, and that was the very presence of God living within them, that they realized that 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 presence was gone, and all that was left is, is, is this shell that we live in, this flesh that we live in. They realized that they were naked. Humanity was created to be a place where the Holy Spirit was meant to reside. But the Holy Spirit couldn't reside in a temple that was in rebellion against God. God's not going to exist in, a, in, in some rundown jalopy. He's, he deserves the Cadillac, right? So he's, he, uh, Jesus paid the sin for all that rebellion so the human heart could be cleansed from its rebellion and sin. And the Holy Spirit took up residence inside all those who would believe again. The second part of that came in Acts chapter 2, when the power and authority of God was given back to man. Remember, God gave us dominion over this planet. God gave us dominion over even the spiritual realm. And that dominion was stripped and corrupted when Adam and Eve sinned. But in Acts chapter 2, it's about receiving it back. And that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The power to be changed, the power to live holy, the power to know the mind of God and to exercise His will and His power on the earth. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And John preached Jesus in all of His fullness. He preached Him as the Anointed One, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. And that's how John set the stage for Jesus to come into the hearts and minds of the people. And lastly, I want to look at John's final example to us. I want to end our study with John's life and looking at the moment before his execution. 
King Herod executed him at a drunken party. And right before that, John sent a question to Jesus, and Matthew describes it in Matthew chapter 11. It said, When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And I've, heard a lot of, I've read a lot of commentators and, and heard a lot of pastors say that John doubted Jesus toward the end of his ministry. I don't think that was the case at all. I think John was simply asking Jesus, is there anything else I have to do? Is my life's mission over now? I think John probably would have chewed his way out of prison had Jesus said, no, there's one more thing I need you to do. John was just saying, look, I know I'm probably never going to get out of here, but I want to make sure everything that you would have me to do in life is done for you, my God, before I move on. John just wanted that affirmation that his work was complete. And that's the final lesson I want to take from John's life. All of us here who would work for the kingdom of God, in one way or another, would make that kind of commitment that John had. That we would do the work until we receive word from the Lord. And that word is only going to come in one way. And it should be the desire of our lives to hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that you just search our hearts and minds and spirits, that we would have the heart of a John the Baptist, that we would not care what people thought or think of us, we would not care what people say about us, but we would have one desire in our lives, and that is to fulfill the mission you would have us in this life. Every single one of us here has a calling, Lord. Every single one of us has a mission. Every single one of us has something that you want to do through us to reach this community, to reach our families, to reach our friends, to reach our co-workers. You have a plan for every single one of us, Lord, to be missionaries right where we are. So, Lord God, I ask, Father, that you just search us and know us this morning, that you even bring to mind right now people and places and situations that exist within our within our sphere of influence right now that need Jesus.